most of the Gnostic groups are very much along the line of trying to understand why we why we're suffering. Our existence is so much about suffering. And so they what they what they do is they rethink the problem. It's not a problem that humans are causing our own suffering. So we haven't done anything like a primal fall or something like that that's caused our suffering. Instead, what they say is that our true selves have been torn away from the root. We've been torn away from, from, from God. And, and we we're living in an environment that has isolated us. And so their, their whole idea is to, re, to return us to that root so that we can become whole again through this experience. Hello and welcome. My name is John Price. I'm your host of The Sacred Speaks. Glad you're here. Today I'll be talking with Dr. April DeConnick. And um, for this intro piece, I want to introduce a couple of the kind of ongoing themes of the podcast, introduce you to April, and then give you an introduction to a book that we talk about. And we didn't ever provide that in the conversation, so I want to do that here. So first to April. April DeConnick holds the Isla Carroll and Percy E. Turner Professorship in New Testament and Early Christianity at Rice University and is the chair of the Department of Religion. She received her Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in 94 in the Department of Near Eastern Studies. Since then, she has studied, written, and taught on a range of topics revolving around the silenced voices of religious people and the communities that were left behind or discarded when Christianity emerged in the first four centuries CE as a new religion. She's the co-founder and executive editor of a new academic journal called Gnosis, Journal of Gnostic Studies, published by a very prestigious publishing house in Europe. She founded and chaired for many years the Mysticism, Esotericism, and Gnosticism group in the Society of Biblical Literature, and is now the chair of the Nagamati and Gnosticism group. She is most noted for her writing on the Gospel of Judas. When she challenged sensationalism generated by the National Geographic Society that wrongly claimed that Judas is a Gnostic hero in this text and that his heroics could rewrite our understanding of early Christianity. Instead, her work shows that Judas remains demonic in the Gospel of Judas, just as he is in the New Testament Gospels. Her work on this text was so instrumental that she appeared on CNN's documentary on the Gospel of Judas, that premiered in 2015 on the TV series Finding Jesus. Her most recent book, The Gnostic New Age, has won an award from the Figure Foundation for the best book to be published by a university press in philosophy and religion. It is tradition 
that the Figure Foundation composes a cone for each book to receive this award and publishes it on the front page. The cone for the Gnostic New Age reads, That square be squared. If you have any insight into the meaning of this cone, she'd love to hear it. And you can reach her, certainly go to the uh, Rice University page and look up April, or she's got a website, aprildeconic.com, A-P-R-I-L-D-E-C-O-N-I-C-K.com. Okay, a couple other notes. Uh, music, theme music, is Modern Nations. You can uh, The song Clouds is what I've been using for the podcast. You can look them up at modernnationsmusic.com. And, uh, and The Sacred Speaks. You can look this project up at thesacredspeaks.com. A note on music. The music you heard earlier is a cool project that uh, that April was involved in. And as we finished the interview, uh, we were talking about my interest in music. And she said, oh, I've got something for you. And she gave me this, uh, this CD. It's called uh, Gnosis in Rhythm and Song. And essentially what it is, is uh, April's way of bringing to life music that was used in ancient Gnostic ritual. And it's a pretty fascinating album, actually. It's a, it's a wonderful creative project and a testament to her love of this material. At the end of this episode, there is a about a three or four minute introduction piece that April gives to this album. And then I, I put a selection, one song, um, you heard the beginning part of it at the beginning of this episode, but you'll hear the full version of that song at the end. So hang around after it's finished and listen to April explain this project and then uh, offer one song from the project. Initially, I wanted to include a couple of the entries from the Nagamati scriptures, or at least my version of it. Instead, I'll just kind of direct you to it. The Nagamati scriptures, N-A-G-H-A-M-M-A-D-I, I have the revised and updated translations of the sacred Gnostic texts edited by Marvin Meyer. And essentially in 1945, there were a, a number of books that were discovered that really transformed scholars' understanding of early Christianity, um, Neoplatonic thinking, Sethian, Valentinian thought. We had a couple of these uh, subjects in the conversation but if you want to take a moment, look up the Nagamati scriptures, because we didn't really go into explaining what they are. For now, we'll get started. I want to thank April for her time and for all the energy that she puts into researching this material to bring it to us. Uh, the book we talked about is called The Gnostic New Age, and it's, uh, it's April's newest book, and I, I'm grateful that she wrote it. Thanks, April. And we'll leave it there. Okay, we're going. So, uh, thanks. This is cool. I, I, I was up just this morning uh, reviewing your, your book, um, The Gnostic New Age. And uh, I just felt a sense of gratitude you were you were connecting dots and saying and writing some things that I really needed to hear some bridges and you know I, I think that in any good book you 
I have I have more questions than I had, you know, which is so great about a I, I kind of know the directions where I need to go now after reading the book. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, I kind of as I was reading the book, I realized we can go into a lot of a lot of depths. But the one thing you said is in, in either 1974 or 79, whenever it was, when you read Elaine Pagel's work um, on the Gnostic Gospels, and I found myself being really curious. What initiated you into this world? I mean, we're surrounded by your books and you're head of the department here at Rice. Um, this vocation has been created around you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can, can we start there? Is that, sure. Okay. Just a, yeah, just a bit of personal background. On sure. Well, um, I guess my exposure to this literature really started when I was in my first year of college. I was at a community college and really struggling to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, as most young people do. Any good student. <laughs> and I was in a nursing program and really unhappy, really struggling with that. Yeah. And my mother was, uh, she was uh, very interested in religion, new age uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. And she went to a bookstore and she picked up a book by Ron Cameron called The Other Gospels and brought it home and said, oh, April, you're going to really enjoy this. Take a read. And that's where I, when I opened that book and I started reading about the Gospel of Thomas and reading that text, uh, I just felt an affinity with, with that text and what it had to say about Jesus. And my first question was, why isn't this in the New Testament? I don't understand what, what's going on here. <laughs> I got that question too. <laughs> and so that was that was my motivation. I started then I started looking for other books. I ran across Elaine Pagel's book and um but basically at that time the sort of field of like Gnosticism wasn't really um hadn't yet really integrated the Nagamati materials. There wasn't right. a lot available on it in the early 80s in, in a way that I could read it as somebody from the general public and really understand what was going on. Right. And so I just made the decision that I was going to study this material. I was going to go to school. I was going to learn Greek. I was going to learn Hebrew. I was going to learn Coptic. I, whatever I needed to in order to figure this material out for myself. And that, so that launched me. Yeah, It sparked me, and there was no turning back. There was no question that I was ever going to do anything else. What happened to nursing and community college? Um, I left. So you just bailed? I bailed. After a semester in nursing, I just said, that's it, and um, started just looking into the humanities kind of in general. And then I came across that book, and I realized that I wanted to focus there. And so after my two years at the community college, then I was able to transfer to the University of Michigan. And I worked in their Near Eastern Studies Department in Biblical Studies. So I'm actually trained in Near Eastern Studies and Biblical Studies. That whole language thing is pretty fascinating. You know, I, I meet a lot of you folks that are in this world and <laughs> right. Greek and, you know, all these. That's wonderful. How does that... Um... How does that influence the work? I mean, do you have to do that in your... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because even in your book, I would notice, you know, you'd, you'd put in your uh, parentheses, my translation. Right. You've got a, that's, a, that's a fantastic right. handle where you're not having to trust. Right. And I'm finding that with the materials, the Coptic materials from Nag Hammadi and Chaka's Codex and other 
um, other texts. Now, when those were translated, I think that maybe the people translating them weren't weren't as familiar with the thought systems that the people who are writing them were involved in. And so sometimes they'll translate it in a way that's not quite not quite it. And when you go back and look at it and you really kind of understand what the thought system is, you're able to make a better a better translation. I tell you, my mind was blown recently. I interviewed a guy who's probably as close to a Jewish mystic as you can get, and he was talking about Hebrew and um, uh, in particular about translating. And he said that you know the way that the translation went, def- I've identified that first line of the Bible is in the beginning when it's in a beginning, and that like kind of shift is he's saying that's what a lot of these kind of Kabbalists and um, Jewish mystics really work with is kind of the language and what's being used and all of a sudden it opens up something pretty radical well and certainly the the Gnostics that I study this was their thing right they would take and appropriate scriptures from other traditions mainly the ones that we have like in non Kamadi, they were appropriating the Jewish scriptures Mm -hmm. And then they were rereading them in ways that kind of looked for those um, kind of clefts, right, yeah. in the in the in the in the in the material, and when and then they would say, "What? Well, why is that? What? Well, what's going on there? Why does it say this and not this?" Or you didn't notice that it actually doesn't say this, but it says this. Or, so they they do these really wonderful sort of inverse readings. They remind yeah. me of postmodern readers. Well, and I want to do that because I I had this one question written out on about page three of these notes for this conversation, which is the relationship between postmodernism and Gnostics. And it sounds to me like the Gnostics were postmodern. They feel like that to me. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So let's kind of set the stage for folks that, that, you know, this language certainly not long ago was pretty new to me. And so it, it, it certainly needs some tending. Um. The, the first thing, of course, is the big the big G word, right, Gnostic. Uh, could you define that? Just kind of talk sure, a little bit about sure. what it is. So this is a word that the ancient people coined and used, and it seems to have had a kind of a generic meaning that uh, was applied to people who claimed to have knowledge of God that they had, that they didn't get from books or they didn't get from teaching, but they got through an experience of God. Um and this wasn't necessarily, this wasn't a rapture-like experience, uh-huh. but it was a trained experience. It was through some sort of initiatory practices in which they were um, almost brought to the God, you know, with the mystagogue, with the with the, the trainer, right? Um, and then it, it would have this it was, it was a vision of the God or is usually what, what they're after, yeah. Um that transformed them. They believed really, really changed who they were, awakened their um, their spiritual self, their center as their true self, something along these mm-hmm. lines, and really empowered them. So that that's sort of the gen that that's the 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 general definition that the ancient people were were using. And I know they've got a lot of different kind of tribes, you know, or groups right. in, in the Gnostic world. But it, it seems like one of the points you were making in the book is that there is this kind of, uh, like we were saying earlier, that's trauma, you know, that the human being by the nature of living has experienced a trauma and yeah. the mission is to be kind of, to, to you, you kept using the term wholeness, which is a term I like 
to yeah. use a lot. It's a tradition of which I'm a part that uses yeah. the term wholeness. And is that is that a thread that exists in all of the Gnostic groups? Most of the Gnostic groups are very much along the, the line of trying to understand why we why we're suffering. Our existence is so much about suffering, and so they what they what they do is they rethink the problem. It's not a problem that humans are causing our own suffering. So we haven't done anything like a primal fall or something like that that's caused our suffering. Instead, what they say is that our true selves have been torn away from the root. We've been torn away from, from, from God. And, and we we're living in an environment that has isolated us. And so their, their whole idea is to, re, to return us to that root so that we can become whole again through this experience. So let's set the stage of, uh, you know, as I said earlier, transgression's been a big interest mm -hmm. of mine. I know it's an interest of yours. Um, so let's, state, let's set the stage of the dominant mm -hmm. kind of uh, those who are in power, right? What, paint the picture of what the kind of social and political structure was like, uh, certainly the religions that came out of that uh, network. Sure. Now that's a big question, but sure. just sort yeah. of in general. So we're dealing with uh, a time when the, the the people we're talking about are living in the Mediterranean world. It's a Roman world. Mostly they've been colonized. So they're indigenous populations that have been colonized by the Romans. So they're living quite under quite a bit of social trauma, right, and, and that they're experiencing. Religiously, what you have going on is uh, the, the Roman world was a, a world full of what we would call civic religion. It was a religion in which you were required, expected to give honors to the patron deity of your city uh, and various other deities f for other reasons, including maybe even the emperor. Uh, they, you know, give divine honors to, to, to the emperor. And all this was done because the relationship between the human and the god was perceived to be this, this servant relationship. So the so p human beings were servants of the gods. Um, as long as you served them properly, you fed them and you gave them the right gifts and anything they asked for, you'd be protected and okay. But if there were p people in your population in your city that didn't do that, th you may get a famine or illness or something like disaster might happen to you that the gods might cause. Which, of course, sets up your neighbor to get pissed at you if you're not asking, right. acting right. Right. Yeah. And this isn't only in Rome. You see this also in, you know, the uh, Judaism of the time as well. I mean, the Yahweh God was their God, their, their, their um, I was going to say tribal God, but their national God. And he had related to the people in the form of, of a covenant relationship. So Yahweh had a set of rules. It was called the covenant or the law. And if as long as his people abided by that those rules, he would protect them. If they didn't do what they were supposed to, then he didn't have to protect them. It was this sort of treaty kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's this very similar, a very similar human God relationship. And so the Gnostics 
are playing with that. They're, they're not sure about that relationship. They actually don't, don't approve of that relationship. Well, so you said that the three you identified, um, and I know this because I wrote it down and rehearsed it, was the servant, covenant, and ecstatic. Yeah, ecstatic. And, and it, that tends to be? So the, the ecstatic is similar. It's still a relationship with that the human is very much lesser than, than the God. And we'll, we'll, so, so you could see this throughout, for instance, the Jewish tradition where you would have um, somebody uh, have, a, have, a per, have a vision, you know, go to the divine throne room like Ezekiel, you know, see the God and then come back and tell everybody what they're supposed to do. So the relationship still between the human and, and the God is still that of a servant um, in those ecstatic relationships. Right. And then the Gnostics kind of came along and they're the ones who are saying, uh-uh. I mean, yeah. So there's an innovation that goes on. Right. And this is really, and we call it in, in scholarship an emer- emergent structure. It's, an, it's something new that happens. And so I was trying in the book to figure out where, where did it come from? What, like, what, and I, not in terms of like a singular origin, but like what what had to what had to be the sort of the initial conditions for this to have emerged, and I think it was actually in ecstasy. I think that we we at the time what I trace through looking at sort of Gnostic mythology, the elements in it, things they're talking about, I kind of trace these initial conditions to Egypt which is a little bit different from what other scholars are doing. And I suggest that it's it's happening at the temples in Egypt, which at the time, uh, pilgrims like Greek pilgrims or Jewish pilgrims would go to Egypt because it was the land of the ancient knowledge. It was a great place to go. Everybody went there that was famous, you know, so the stories of Pythagoras going there and Plato and so forth and being initiated into all of the different um, um, temples, you know, around Egypt. And so I imagine that that was what was going on, is that these Greeks and, and Jews were going down to these temples and going through some sort of ecstatic ceremony there, in which they actually encountered the a god they didn't recognize. And this is a god the the the, the Egyptians call the god before all gods. He's the the god of uh, the one who made the millions. So uh-huh. this is the god who made all the gods. Yeah, because that that was one of the interesting things is that that um, or things is that in your your Gnostic reading, there is a God beyond Yahweh. Right. And that, that was right. And so my in my imagination, then these people would come out of this experience, and they would immediately say, "Oh my gosh, what's this God's relationship to Yahweh? My mm-hmm. God that I've been serving and worshiping my whole life, my family. What the heck?" Right. And so I think it's out of that sort of questioning. Then they would turn back to the biblical stories and they would read them and they started reading them then against the grain. They started to read them to see what they'd missed. And they started to see that Yah- that the, the Yahweh God in the Genesis story actually isn't kind of very kind. Uh, he does a lot of things in those stories that destroy humans and all other kinds of things. So they start reading the story backwards from what it traditionally was read. 
You know, like the serpent was right. Right. The serpent was right. Yeah. Yeah, which takes us into a whole different right. uh, and And you can see that it won't take long when doing that sort of thing where, where suddenly Yahweh would, would become a lesser god. And then you would have to figure out what the relationship between that god and this transcendent god that you ex- have experienced was. So, so going back, because you're, you're, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is, and I guess what I'm interested in too, are the things that have kind of blown your mind and taken you to the next lily pad, you know? So that one where you're saying like, what's the nature of this? I mean, is, is it, does it tend to be social and political? Is power oriented, right? I mean, is that too limited from a postmodernist lens? Like what, what brings about this innovative newness? Oh, I think it's a combination of all these things, including the psychological you know, experience. Travel. Travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being around uh, uh, people different than your own way of seeing the world. Yep. Yeah. Your your aunt. Your sort of the things that are your ancestry, the things you're taking with you, um, the things that you're dissatisfied with and questioning. Usually, these people, um, I call them dislocated. Um, sometimes it's mm-hmm. like they're experiencing social dislocation. Sometimes. It's religious dislocation. They're not quite satisfied with the answers they're getting. Um, it's psychological. It's a combination of just a, the person feeling dislocated and dissatisfied, and they become they start to seek out answers. The real aha moment for me as I was preparing to write this book. Now I'd studied this material for a really long time, but as I sat down to write, I decided to put on the kind of the lens of an anthropologist for a minute and to say that if I were an anthropologist and I was going to have the opportunity to actually like observe these groups, to go out and, and look at them, how would I describe what they were doing? And that's when I realized that what they were doing was worshiping a transcendent God. So that that was the, that was the thread that was holding these groups together. It wasn't the thread that they had, you know, demoted a God or anything like that. And Mm. that opened up a whole new way of thinking for me that I had to work out in this book because it's that that's kind of a new way of understanding the Gnostics. Would you would you you've said that a couple of times, a new way like what is because then that makes you one of these innovators, right? Because there was a way of being and you're kind of saying what, what what's in the cracks. So while people have, I mean, while while scholarship has talked about this transcendent God or the supreme God being there, that they mainly have focused on the, on the fact that these people have a demiurge or a craftsman God and that this is, is the Yahweh God. And then they, so they've been trying to define Gnosticism from that, from that angle. But that angle, unfortunately, doesn't allow us into what they were really all about. And what they were really all about was the transcendent God and trying to get there and realizing that there were the, these obstacles that were in the way, gods, archons, demons, whatever you want to call them, and that, um, and there, and, and that this was a critique of all the other religions that existed at the time. They were essentially saying, look, all of your gods are not really gods. They're Most of them are demons, if not all of them. I'm sure that went over really well. Yeah, yeah. you can see why. <laughs> so then when I went back and started to read Irenaeus, who mm-hmm. is the church father who tells us so much about the, the early Gnostics, 
he opens his chapter by talking about the fact that he's angry with these people because they don't think that Yahweh is the transcendent God and that they're worshiping this trans. And I was like, oh my gosh, just confirmation that yes, this is the way to, to proceed if I really want to understand what they were doing. It's, it reminds me of the kind of shamanic thing, you know, where they say you need to, you need to look and see the shadows first. You know, and that's, I mean, what you're doing is really looking into the shadows, what's behind all this stuff. Right. That, and I think that's so, I mean, see what's in the background, not what's in the foreground. When did you write the Voices of the Mystics? So that was back in the early 2000s. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love it how you, you, when you get into, this is my fantasy, when you get into writing, you know, you're, you're, this is just, these are your thoughts as they're evolving. That's it. Yeah. And that's why my early works, my early work, <laughs> and I've developed quite a bit <clears throat> since that time, you know, and. Do you go back to it? Yeah, well, I yes, I do. Yeah. But not, not in the sense that you might think. I may, I may dig back in there for a reference I know that I talked sure, about or sure. something like that. Well, I just wonder about like a musician, you know, going back to, and because you can see the evolution of their, right. their, their art and their creativity and. I, you know, I talked to all these folks who've written books, you know, plural, and kind of seeing that as it evolves. It's got to be a fascinating thing. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, how do I get there? So are you just primed and ready to write a book? You know, is that just kind of in your wheelhouse? You're going to always write books and that's just going to be what you're doing? Like, how does the creative process work when the Gnostic New Age becomes an idea and then you start to put it down into form? Yeah. Well, um, my primary identity is an author. Mm -hmm. So I understand being a professor to be a writer. Um, it's a, it's the, the, the I, I don't know, the biggest way that I can dis distribute new ideas. So my classroom is kind of my lab yeah. where I try the ideas out and, um, and, and I write right out of there. So I teach a class on Gnosticism. Uh, this is the Gnostic New Age was always in my purview from the time I started reading back in early college years. I knew that one day I was going to write a book on Gnosticism and I was going to write it in such a way that this was the book that that I wish I had, yeah. you know, back in 1982 when I read the other Gospels. This is the book I wish I had. So, it, but I just was never ready to write it. I didn't know enough. It took me all these years until enough, until enough clicked in. And I think that part of it is that the, the Gnostic world uh, is uh, very complicated, mm -hmm. um, very un unfamiliar to us today. And so when you initially encounter it, it's weird and crazy and it's hard to figure out what, what are they talking about? And so it took me a long time to get over that hump and finally start to see, oh, ah, this is actually astrology. They're, they're actually involved in soul flights. Okay, the zodiac's important because of this. I didn't know any of that prior to reading on these materials. So until I realized that, all of those references just didn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, for anybody listening, I'm assuming that unless somebody's familiar with astrology, when they hear the word astrology, it's not what you mean when you say astrology. Right. Yeah. Can you speak about that for a sec? Yeah. So their their world, they understood the, 
the gods to live in the heavens and to be connected to the planets and the stars and those types of, of things. Um, and they actually thought that one could journey up through the stars, through pathways and so forth to go to various portions of the heavens. Mm -hmm. And the Gnostics actually thought that their transcendent God didn't live in our cosmos, but was somewhere outside of it. And so they were very interested in figuring out how to make journeys, these sort of initiatory rites, so that they could ascend past various, you know, planet planets and stars and through different gates to get to the very top of the dome, which often they identified with Draco. And that they would that that would be the the kind of doorway out into the transcendent world. I mean, that sounds wild and radical. It's totally wild. And, and and like I said, until you realize that, no, they're really being serious yeah. about this, that, that this is not a metaphor. They're actually doing these journeys, encountering the gods at these different places in order to get to the top. Part of this has to do with the way the ancient people thought about human beings as having a soul or a spirit that, that drop down through the planets and then embodies. And this was a, this was a reincarnation sort of scheme. So you die, your soul goes back up through, um, and then when it incarnates, it comes back down and enters a body. Human beings have been trying to make sense of the mystery for eons. You know, I mean that's what we that's what we do. And I and the the irony is that as much uh, as much as some of that sounds like absolute nonsense, you know, two thousand years. What we're doing now is going to seem kind of like nonsense, I, I imagine. I would think so. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so it's. It, I think sometimes we we have that solipsistic issue of thinking that you know this is the we are the pinnacle of, uh, of you know technological advances, and you know we're this uh, uh, you know the the the, the evolutionary uh, perfection of of uh, of life, and, and we're just not. You know we're we're trying to make sense of things in ways that make sense to us in a hundred or 200 years. It's just not going to be there. So, but I did, I found myself when I was reading, you know, thinking about like dark Lords and you right. know, all, it's like, well, this sounds like, uh, you know, Scientology, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know what? 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 Scientology is? You know, pr pr it's a it's a science fiction. It sounds like science fiction. You know, very creative and amazing. Like, so you're you're on. Well, we something. can flip that around and say maybe science fiction comes from this. Yeah, I mean, I get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, my idea is <laughs> back to back to this innovation is that so these thinkers having this now experience of this transcendent God and they're questioning sort of their religious upbringings and starting to seek and figure out what happened to them, um, they end up flipping spirituality so that they start to understand that they come directly from this transcendent God. And um, therefore, because they have this sort of innate connection with this God through their spirit, they themselves are either the, the the texts talk about either being equal or higher gods themselves, like either equal to the gods of the religions or higher than them. So this, they, they no longer saw themselves as being servants to the Roman gods or 
servants to Yahweh, they in themselves were beyond those gods. Not if you need to put the brakes on here, but right there I thought about that wonderful story you said about, or you wrote about Paul, when he starts talking about like, it's all within you, and it turns all hedonic, and everybody's having sex with everybody else, and they're, right. you know. So th there is a thread here about kind of the social glue that right. binds people together. And I'm I'm sure on some level, those people that were in power were, of course, thinking like, all these people are going to go crazy. I mean, they're going to go nuts, and we've got to keep some sense of order. And so on one level, they were right, you know, that... The, that people do go a bit batshit crazy. But then on another level, they were also humans that were probably very self-serving and dominating other people. And but but your comment about Paul that I thought was so great is when Paul says, Oh shit, oh let me let me pull back from that. You right. Know? Would you what what happened there? Yeah. So uh, you know, so it, imagine if you have this perspective, then all of a sudden the sort of laws that the gods have put in place that the that the human powers are their regents and they put in place, suddenly they all look kind of questionable. Like, yeah. do I really have to follow all of that? That's right. So you get this sort of anonymium kind of flare in some of these communities. And so my, my thought is, is that what happened is, I call it the Gnostic spirituality emerges, this new emergent structure, this new way to think about how to be religious. Mm -hmm. And um, it doesn't stay in Egypt. It, it kind of goes viral. And heads up into uh, Palestine and uh, these regions here and over into Syria. And I think that that Paul may have been affected by some of this, some of these ideas, because he clearly um, I, w I don't I would not call I would not call him a Gnostic with a capital G as uh -huh. in I don't think he's that. But I think that that Gnostic spirituality is starting to seep into his way of thinking. You can see it in the way he talks about uh, wanting to suddenly Yahweh to be a universal, a universal God that that's not a tribal God anymore and what the implications of that are and what happens when the law starts to go away. And maybe the law was just given by angels, wasn't really given by God. You see all of this thinking going on. And uh, Clearly, he's telling his communities that the laws doesn't matter anymore because his communities are getting a little out of hand. And at a certain point, he realizes that this message is really creating social havoc. Yeah. And so at least when he starts writing 1 Corinthians, the, the document we call 1 Corinthians, he puts a break on. And he says, yeah, the law, you know, we might be free from the law, but there are some things that some some parameters that we need to keep. So you're kind of pulled back into the world at yeah. that moment, you know? Yeah, and, and he really starts laying on the servant language at that point. You know, I'm a servant of Christ. You all should be servants of Christ. So, what are your thoughts about that? It just it just shows that uh, I think it shows kind of the social effects of this Gnostic spirituality, which is really countercultural, right? And transgressive. It's transgressing now. It's transgressing received knowledge. It's transgressing traditions in ways that p put people in new places and and allow them freedoms they didn't have before. So it, it, can we go into counterculture there? Sure. Is there, is there more we need to 
attend to that we've said so far, or can we just kind of roam into that? No, we can roam into it. Sure. I, I, because so so because that really is a fundamental thread here. Is that the, the, the I mean, are, are they are they kind of you know overlaying each other, Gnosticism and counterculture, right? They go hand in hand, correct? I, I think so. Yeah. So then, I, I mean, that the spirituality to me is a flipped. It flips. It flips the traditional spiritualities and the traditional outlooks in such a way that does end up with uh, very very much countercultural movements. That's not to say the Christians in general weren't countercultural. Yeah. They were. And they were perceived that way by the Romans. But by the mid-2nd century, the group that emerges as the Catholics, these people start to figure this out. And they're like, look, if we want longevity, we can't keep being this countercultural. So they start to do things that they can to make themselves look uh, more Roman, you know, and their practices, for instance, they may, they go with public religion and um, they start writing these long apologies to, you know, the emperor and other, you know, we're really good guys and look how moral we are. We follow all your rules and mm-hmm. yeah, we, we aren't going to sacrifice, aren't going to make sacrifices to the gods, but that's okay. You should let that be okay because you've let that be okay with the Jews. It should be okay with us too, because those are our companions you know so the the other christians were aware of this and they so they start identifying these gnostic groups as being the deviant ones they're the deviant ones right they're the ones that are the really bad and that's when you start getting this whole conversation about heresies come up you know these are the heretics we're the okay guys does this process seem to continue over and over and over again. I mean, is meaning like, I mean, there's not an infinite nature to culture. Right. You know, like. You mean, is it a pattern? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Because the the way that Jung talked about this, he he called it enantiodromia. And the, I'm just wondering if we always are going to have these shifts, you know, where, so then those who are, uh, Gnosticized against, <laughs> sorry, make make stuff up here, um, are are then going to be the Gnostics of you know three four generations later? Is that part of the pattern that pendulum swing? Actually, I think the pattern is is that when you have some kind of cultural innovation like this, especially in terms of religion, let's just stay with religion, mm-hmm. um, and it's this countercultural, you're going to get backlash from the the the. The, the mainly from the traditional religions, but also if, I mean, in early Christianity, it's complicated because you have all these sort of varieties of Christianity that emerge by mid second century that are all competing, right? And so the Romans don't know the heck, they don't know the difference between a Gnostic or a not Gnostic, or, and right. they don't care, they're all Christians. And so what you wanna do is you want to, you want to, get rid of those people that you consider to be too deviant that might be causing the problem, like causing the Romans to look at you Uh and say, what are you doing? Put those guys out, say those guys aren't really Christians. We're the Christians and look how moral and great we are. And we follow all the rules where these guys don't. And so that was, I think, I think that pattern happens over and over again in Mm -hmm. culture. So in other words, it's, um, it, it, it kind of self selects, 
uh, the the uh, the middle path. Yes. Know, so the ones on the fringes right. are somewhat forgotten. Right. They're the ones that usually like start, like the movement usually starts like a kind right. of fringe thing. And then if they want to be accepted, they get to the center and they have to they have to push out the the, the fringe in their community then. Right. right? You're yeah. you're, uh, you're going to take us all down with you. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and just another seed to plant is you, you mentioned science fiction earlier being kind of born out of this, you know. Um, no, I, I just wonder. If I, my, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I don't I, know that that's the, that's true or not. Well, but. yeah, because I, I think there, I mean, there are certain um, patterns there, you know, that that. Uh, I mean, that pr would probably gets into a really complicated question or conversation about, you know, what's behind what is known or what's in culture and what's peeking through in those mystery, mysteries and certainly in literature, but science fiction definitely. So. So speaking of that, you, I, I loved your choices of films. For for anybody who hasn't read the book, one of the ways you set it up was for most of the chapters you would have uh, a bit of commentary on a current day story right, or right. film, and then kind of unpack your um, your argument about Gnosticism or the history or whatever it was within that within that kind of narrative, the film right. narrative. You did. I mean, we talked Darren Aronofsky earlier. Right. You know, you had uh, Pie in there. Right. I was blown away. Not many people know about that movie. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Although, be sure you're in a pretty grounded, uh, right, emotional place to watch the film. Right. Um, Kevin Smith uh, in the film Dogma. You did yeah. The Matrix. Um, Pleasantville. Pleasantville. Yeah. You uh, Truman. Truman. I mean, yeah. Uh, the Truman Matrix, Show. You, of course. You yeah. Have to, you have to do Matrix. Right. right. Well, and I, I, I just thought. Um, you know, bringing popular culture, it's 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 um, you didn't go so far into it like like so many people have done. It was enough just to begin to get somebody thinking about how these patterns show up current day. Right. And I just I like that being in the process. So on that uh, th within that thread, um, I I am interested in the narratives of all these folks. Because um, you 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 buoyed up that argument talking about the history of, uh, you know, all, so many names I'd I'd heard. Um, Manny was one I, I've heard, of course, but didn't know a lot about. And I'm hearing all these religious names that you hear about, but Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism and Mithraic, you know. And just as a weird story, my wife and I went to um, Italy once. We were in Rome, and my favorite site ever. Uh, I think I've ever been to. We had no idea. We had a tour guide. We walked into this church, cathedral. Right. You immediately take a right and go into the gift shop, and then you go down these stairs. Down the stairs. And then you're like, like a hundred feet down into another cathedral that's like 12th century, and then you go down another set of stairs into Rome, a Roman city street, and the one thing that will always stand out is there was a Mithraic temple. Yeah. It blew my mind. Yeah. Well. Is that a Gnostic community? Is... The Mithraic community? Yeah. No, no. So the, the Mithraic community is a Roman, it's a Roman religion, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's for all males. It's for soldiers. That's right. That's right. That was the deal. Because yeah. it was, um, I, the, the the woman that was taking us down there said it, it didn't last very long because right. uh, <laughs> you know, women got pissed. And they, they couldn't be a part of it. But I, I guess the thing that was so interesting, though, is all the, the astrology. and Yes, 
there was an ecstatic component to that. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, that was just a my own little. Yeah. So they're they're ca- they they're they're they weren't really churches. They were caves. Right. And they had benches that went around it that mimicked the zodiac. Yeah. So when you sat on the bench, you sat at different spots in the zodiac. Yeah, I put my right. rear in, right. and right. you know it was and so... it's all marked on the chairs. Yeah. Wh- where you are. And so my my vision of this is that when the when you were getting to be initiated to the next grade, there was probably movement around the chairs and mm-hmm. where you you got to go and and so forth. And they they gave them like souvenir gifts, you know, after like a helmet or whatever the whatever stage you reached, whatever the gift was you received. And yeah. So why why, why so many different religions? What what is this? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't think there's an answer to that. I te- I just tend to think like they, this is probably reductive, but I see so much kind of cultural context, but also individual typology. You know, I do think it's psychological on some level, you know, certainly a product of context, you know, but, you know, I, I always think of religion, uh, the, my, my insight, I mean, I, I, I never really, not until, you know, in the past, 10 years that I really start to contemplate what religion really is about. And I realize that religion is consciousness. It's our exploration of consciousness of how human beings has, as I said earlier, you know, made sense of these mysteries. So we projected the known world onto the unknown world and began to know new things about the unknown world within us. And so it was the way we kind of related to those unknowns. And that will, I think it'll always continue. But, but your your overview of all these various religions, kind of in one space, I found to be so valuable. Oh, to good. Kind of hear, hear that thread, you know, because you've got kind of the more deterministic folks, the more materialistic folks, the more ecstatic kind of immaterial folks that are finding their communities and binding together to kind of answer for these things. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, that's the best I can come up with right now of kind of what... I think what religion is, but um, yeah, I know those words don't don't really get at it. So uh, where do we go next? Do you, can we go into the a couple of the people sure. that you were bringing in? Sure. H- who, who do you love? Who's the? Oh, my favorite's Valentinus. Yeah. yeah. Go go there. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, I just think he was a genius. Hmm. Uh, he was, from what I can understand from my work, he lived in the early second century. He was probably part of the early Catholic movement. And he had a very different vision of what Christianity was than the other Catholics there in Rome. He was from Alexandria, but he went to Rome. And he tried to, he put in his, his uh, bid for uh, Bishop of Rome and uh, lost. <laughs> and I think at that point, uh, the text, uh, Tertullian tells us he got kind of grumbly at that point and uh, 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 left the church. I'm taking my baseball. I'm heading out. <laughs> and so he, uh, he does. I think he, le- he leaves and he says, fine, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to have my own Christian, I'll have my own Christian church the way it should be. And it's really interesting because he had some very important disciples 
who were teachers in different cities and different locations. And around the time that this event happened, mid-second century, all of his disciples came to Rome. And so I kind of think that perhaps he said to them, come on, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this my way now and we're going to do this right. And so what he did is he set up these churches that looked exactly like the Catholic churches. So you would go there and it was the same sort of sermon and Eucharist and singing whatever hymns and prayers. They were the same thing. And this is the one, one of the things that made the other Catholics mad, right? Because you didn't know the difference between his church and their church right from the outside. But as you attended, he, they would say to the, they would say to these, these folks, if you're interested, we, we can take you through a second baptism and you can learn the mysteries. Mm-hmm. And so the mysteries, of course, were the Gnostic mysteries, which uh, they'd baptize them and, you know, had these sort of initiation ceremonies. I don't know how many depended on the Gnostic community, but in Valentinus, he at least had, had the one. And, um, and where you'd receive all the teachings, all the Gnostic teachings. So he was really, he was really smart, uh, really smart because, you know, you didn't know, you didn't know it was a Gnostic church. Yeah. You didn't know it was anything different. Secrets. Secrets. Yeah. And marketed the secrets. I mean, so. you set that up, uh, marketing. He marketed it this way, you know. And I, I, yeah, I couldn't help but think about the kind of personal you know walking that line between you know praise you know kind of, i'm sure these figures were all pretty charismatic um smart you know um, and people wanted a leader yeah. you know they wanted a leader to help them deal with as you said earlier their suffering yeah. we respond well to those uh being a part of, you know, behind the velvet Well, ropes. and I mean, Valentinus was, was so brilliant in the way that he talked about that because for him, the way, the way he talked about it is that, look, when God, when the initial God, the initial source of being, um, like thought, you know, like he had a thought, like that created something that came into, it was a being that came to life through just his thoughts. And as he thinks, he diversifies and diversifies, right, into, into many. And it's this process of, of, the, of the one God becoming many that, that where the fault line is. Because at some point in this sort of reproductive, reflective process, um, the, the copy no longer looks like the, the original. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always use a Xerox machine with my students to say, how many of you received, uh, no, a Xerox copy from a professor yeah. you can hardly read? It's because it was Xeroxed how many times previously? And so they, so what I'm trying to say is that Valentinus traced kind of the fall to something that was inevitable. It's part of the natural process of becoming, coming into being. My, and, my fantasy about Nagamati is that I know a bit enough to be dangerous, but not a lot, you know. And that was a big deal, 1940s. You know, all of a sudden, this new text. Yeah, it didn't come a big deal until really the, um, really the 60s. I mean, they they were found in the 40s, but they didn't come really to light until 
the 50s and started to be worked on in the late 50s. When scholars first started working on these materials, they realized that Christianity was even more diverse in its origins than what they had recognized previously. Um, and they also realized reading them that these guys weren't the bad guys, that the uh, church fathers like Irenaeus and so forth had, had painted them to be, that, um, that their texts were very, very beautiful, very much uh, full of religious feeling and... Um, yeah. So, so, so in in other words, the 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 organ the organized institutions of these churches were intentionally trying to create these Gnostics into the kind of the bad guys. Yes. And so, Gnostic was like a four letter word. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And really, they were they were each reflecting something different of each other. You know, they were kind of in opposition to each other. Yes. Yeah. So. I mean, that would, if we find a new text that has to, like, you then have to challenge the the perspective of the dominant power. Right. I mean, everything kind of gets called into question. Right. So we had to start rethinking after Nag Hammadi how we told the story of early Christianity. Yeah. Right. So there was already there was already murmurs um, with uh, when P Professor Bauer in '34 put out a book called Orthodoxy and Heresy in Early Christianity, and he started already making the arguments even before Nakamadi that he thought that the that Christianity kind of emerged regionally, mm -hmm. and it looked different in the different regions, and that it really wasn't until after Nicaea that the Catholics like rewrote the story so that it was a story of their triumph. So he was already talking about that. But then when Nakamadi came to it, it was really clear that that was more the model of what happened than the old traditional story that Irenaeus told, you know, that you have um, sort of the Catholics or the Catholic Church or what have you, like orthodoxy. And then all of a sudden heresy starts sprouting out of it. That's not that's not what happened. So what does Nakamadi say? I mean, I know it's a so what. So what? Looking at these texts, what we know is that that yes, Christianity does emerge regionally, and it emerges in really different ways in different places and locations. Um, yeah. So there. So I, I like to characterize Christianity as plural form. It was a pluralism in early Christianity, and it's not much different than today. What are the What are the theories on how that? happens in different regions why all of a sudden is there this yeah it's not sudden so um actually i'm writing a textbook on it right now <laughs> oh you're the perfect person to talk to then uh so i think that you know you have um first of all you have a, a group of jesus followers after his death who they're jewish they're his family and friends his close you know disciples um so they're they they kind of uh start they, they start to missionize out around and around the areas start converting people they're finding that the jews don't convert easily but there is a, a group within the synagogues called the god fearers have you heard of these folks mm -hmm. before no. so these were gentiles who were really attracted to the monotheism of judaism and also their the ethics of the law and they wanted to be jewish like they wanted to 
to do all those things, but they didn't want to be circumcised. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so they were so they they were kind of like partial Jewish, right? I mean, their identity was something in between, right? And so, when the when the Jewish Christians started coming in the synagogues and talking about Jesus, they were ready to get on the bandwagon because they could be baptized to be initiated and become Jewish. So this group, uh, so the so the Christian group really emerges out of this Gentile God fear population. And they start missionized different areas. And so you you start to see you get um then you get them them arguing about, well, is the law really necessary then for us at all? And so you get kind of conservatives that, yeah, and then the liberals that say no, and then they break off into their group. And Paul comes online as one of these liberals, and he's real successful in his own mission to around these different churches. And his churches start to become really liberal. And I mean, the story goes on like that. So it doesn't emerge randomly. Right. It emerges within certain social situations, and then certain questions come up to kind of modulate the movement in different directions. Yeah, and so pretty, it's pretty quick. You have a lot of different varieties of Christianity emerging. Yeah, out well, of those out of those dynamics. I, I didn't know it was such a variety early on. Yeah, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. And you're writing a textbook on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've just talked about marketing. Yeah, you know, kind of. Team, team playing, you know, um, who's who's going to be on my team? What team can I be on? You know, what, where will I get admission? Right. Um, you, you wrote a lot about these various Gnostic groups that would be open to women and women would convert. You know, that was freaking out the Catholic Church because they, would, you know, they were ape, they got admission. You know, they got behind the curtain. And so, of course, any human being that wants to belong to something says, OK, I'm going to go that way, you know. But there's such a... I don't know. I guess I have that part of me that like, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a, a novice mystic, you know, I just, I want the experience, you know, that, that's yeah. part of my drive is like, I, I'm, I'm trying to pierce behind the intellectual and get into the experiential, you know, and I know the various obstructions that get in the way there. So, so many, I end up seeing religion on, on this kind of social, political right. realm, you know, and, and there's a part of me that really wants to get into the underneath, you know, what's underneath all that. And I think that's certainly what's driving these folks, but they're, I guess when I, you know, reading about all these people that you're writing about, there is that human dimension of, you know, what group can I be a part of and be accepted by? You know, am I going to be liked for my thoughts? You know, am I approved of? You know, th- there's that kind of psychological dimension. When you, when you study these things, and I'm making an assumption here, but when you study these things, are you more connected with that essence of the kind of what the mystics and Gnostics are after? That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I'm, try- I'm trying to understand what, what's motivating them. Yeah. And it's a and it's a number of things. It go, it's just like us. It's just like I, I try to think of them as us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're so affected by our social environment, our family environment, our political environment. I mean, it, it, besides just our own personal needs, 
Yeah. Right. And and when you, I mean, and I don't want to reduce Gnosticism to figuring out suffering, but it, it was just such a large part of what they were offering people was really alleviating their suffering to, to for, for first of all, for to empower them to, to say to them, you know, it's not your fault that you're suffering these things. And then to give them the power to uh, to actually heal. So, you know, they were doing this through these um, very detailed ritual activities, which I think were, we, we, we can compare it to what we're doing today in the kind of the health movement where you, you know, people meditate now or they do yoga mm -hmm. to try to relieve anxiety. They were doing that. I mean, we have, we have um, actually Irenaeus tell us this about Marcus, who was one of the other Valentinian leaders. That in their churches that he actually used the um, the word amen and would have them his congregation sit and repeat this word over and over again to relieve their anxieties. Um, yeah, and so that's... they're doing that as well as these sort of mystical initiations in which they're trying to do sort of the the whole thing where if if I can reunite your spirit with God's spirit, you'll there'll be a sense of wholeness to you and a, and an empowerment. Mm -hmm. Right, that you'll be able to bring back and and actually heal other people, and so they were very much into giving back. I just think I think of who can't relate with kind of a moment in their life where they just look up and say, "Give me a sign for something like uh, you know." Uh, some would say like we're essentially confronted with our aloneness in the cosmos and so we right. have these kind of frameworks that try to help us not feel so alone i think that's um i think that's that reduces things a bit but i certainly think there's truth there too i tend to be a both andist you know and i want right. to like that's happening but there's also something else there um but as a psychotherapist i really responded to and was just struck by you know that conversation we were having earlier about Young and Gnosticism and kind of early therapeutic techniques about chants and meditation yeah. and initiation and you know you talking more about Gnosticism as as shamanic more than anything else you know what are these rituals and rites of passage and ways of being and groups we can be a part that something about the human being responds. Oh. Um, I think I I the the. The analogy that I use in the book is is separation anxiety. Yeah. You know, that really what they're talking about is that the spirit's been torn from its parent. It's been torn from its root, its mother. And that really the only way to resolve that is to mature the spirit. In, and they have these maturation rituals, you know, <clears throat> and, 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 and then re-encounter the parent, you know, after that, after this, after the spirit's matured, yeah, and they talk about it being a little seed when it when you're born, you know, but when you get enlightened, when you are baptized, that starts growing that seed, right? You said so, I had awaken, purge, mature, and yeah. integrate. Yeah, sounds a lot like a psychotherapy handbook. Yep. You know, bring somebody's attention to something that you know powers and forces and patterns that have been existing. You know, br bring that up and speak it. Yep. into the world, you yep. know, be able then to maturely frame yourself around that and then digest it again and integrate it into your personality so that you're 
you know, your, your trauma isn't bringing about a sense of uh, vindictiveness or resentment or bitterness, you know, it's bringing right. out, you know, you kind of accept it and you kind of fold it into your experience. And that, I mean, that's... Well, but Jung was influenced by these materials. <laughs> right. Well, and without a doubt, you know. And, and later in his life, when they when he uh, was showing the Nag Hammadi materials for the first time, um, Professor Quispel told me that uh, he said to him, you, you see, Gillis, this is what I've always been talking about. There's no doubt. Yeah. That, and that was the alchemy piece that I've... Um, and see that that's the part that always gives me you know i there's something else you know um looking at material and seeing what we project into material and kind of knowing ourselves through what we project into the cosmos you know but but then of course that there's something beyond that too you know i guess that's the kind of dual aspect monist you know kind of approach um well, you, you, I don't know where to go there. I'm thinking about you know, psychotherapy in general, certainly Jungian psychotherapy, because I mean, I lead a retreat called Discovering Wholeness. There <laughs> you, know, you, go. you see, <laughs> you, you should try this initiation pattern and see if it works. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I can't help but think that part of what we're doing is we're kind of setting the conditions. I mean, it's almost like setting the nest for people to get out of the their daily experiences, um, the the kind of obligations and ways of being that keep somebody from looking within themselves, and and so you 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 make sure that somebody's fed, you make sure they you know, they're waking up in the morning right. and doing some yoga, and then we're you know feeding their mind with an intellectual discussion, right. you know. Then they go do group work and bond together, and then you know, they present and they get all uncomfortable because you know they they feel nervous about acting something out or presenting or talking. You know, yet they're learning that they matter and they can put themselves out there and be accepted by others. And then everybody sees that happening, and then we realize that we're really not alone. And the concerns <laughs> we all have, or the current, you know, we we share them, and it's normalized and. And we don't feel so all alone in our struggles and our shame and our, our stress. And, you know, by day three, you're creating these enormous metaphors out of just watching the waves, you know, come together and kind of lap at the, the sand, you know, and you're seeing the in and out and the kind of back and forth and, you know, having pretty profound experience and right. taking another look at the kind of shit that's going on all the time. Um, which t takes me to something that I, in the ecstatic approach, you know, you, you were talking about altered states of consciousness. I, I see that thread in a lot of these you know, mystical and kind of Gnostic, even shamanic approaches, you know. And I, I, there is something to that, kind of in what, what we know today, and I know you wrote a little bit about the, the brain, but I'd spoken to a shaman, who, uh, an MD, who's also a shaman, and we were talking a lot about the default mode network, and that's that yeah. kind of really sexy uh, right. network that we're all talking about these days around kind of that part of us that just chisels away and obsesses. Yep. And these states that I, th 
that when you're initiated, when you go through a process, you're held. And so you don't have to be in the driver's seat as much. And these really odd things start to happen. And when you're held in that container by a particular dogma, you know, you come to know yourself in a new way. And um, I, don't, I guess that's, that's, that's my understanding of the psychotherapeutic component of what you were talking about in Gnosticism, which is that they really were creating you know, kind of group therapy, but experiential group therapy. Yeah, you, that would be, you could say that in our language today. Yeah. That, that was going on. What? And you know the, the the ritual is really important because mm -hmm. the ritual is what is is, I think, triggering our autonomic nervous system to, you know, either become go in overdrive or to be pulled back, and quiet, becoming extremely quiet, and both of those states will allow us to kind of break out of our normal personality, right? Because that. That kind of executive self re releases at a certain point when we do those activities or certain drugs like LSD yeah. and so forth, but that breaks through that. And um, and, and that, that's when you start, when people start talking about these disassociative feelings, the feeling that, that, that their self is disintegrated, um, that they're one with everything or this you know, this great feeling of wholeness. So it, it's something that we're, that we can actually like learn to do mm -hmm. through these sorts of extreme practices. I'm not talking about sitting down and saying a mantra a couple times, Yeah. but maybe standing with your arms out overnight, saying it for the whole night. When you were writing <laughs> that, I was going, like holy that. shit, <laughs> right. that's incredible. Like, right. we, and you think you, you, um, uh, which so let, let's talk about that a little bit because incubation was a incubation's a big part was a part of it and and also you um you talked about Pythagoras going to uh I've, I've recently been thinking about Pythagoras interestingly so so what what is incubation in this process okay so incubation is is basically like in yoga when you lay down in the shavasana the, yeah the so, lay down pose there the corpse pose the corpse you know? pose yeah, that's yeah. it and you know you close your eyes and they do this in silence though so there's not music or anything going around and they just like lay there like that for hours and hours they don't sleep so you're not sleeping to dream right but you're just quieting your system to just practically nothing but there the there is like you know, a descent to see Persephone and right. all like, right. Right. and it sounds almost like a friend of mine is a you know Tibetan fella. And he, we talked about incubation and I said, man, I really want to look into this. He goes, yeah, Tibetans have been doing that, you know, like going into the cave, you know, right. they'll do it for like 10 days. Right. In a cave. right. And the way he said it is, and this is not to go from the uh, purely yeah. materialist lens, you know, that's in the darkness and right. in the quiet, you know, weird things start to happen exactly. about with our sensory system and our right. nervous system and well i remember the experiments they did was back in the 70s or 60s where they put you in the tank of water and shut it and then you just float it in there that's depth. incubation yeah well maybe okay. you can go down right. the street to a, right. a place just up the right. road and they have these salt baths where right. they'll close you in and you can you know ostensibly not have the idea is to not have any sensory input right put you in a pretty weird right state and you see things right you're back into these kind of visions you know right 
is was that a part I'm, I'm assuming that was an element of gnostic practice some you... some of the some of the movements were using incubation as as sort of a ritual practice in order to get into these altered states yeah yeah so that that one seems to be mostly connected with hell journeys say more yeah so um so the the gnostics divided their cosmos into three actually yeah the cosmos into three parts so there's the earth there's the underworld and then there's the heavens. And then above that, there is the transcendent God that's in a different world, right? Yeah. So he's outside the cosmos. And so to get to him, you have to journey through all these different places. So you have to, first of all, they start usually in the underworld um, where they have this incubation, I think, uh, experience. They're wakened up in the underworld. Um, their spirit is what it does is it's awakening of their spirit, hmm. right? This is the start of the journey. And then they, uh, after they journey through that world, um, then like, then they would have s several, probably several rituals to, to actually get finally through all the, the heavens, you know, they had seven heavens, sometimes 13 spaces. I mean, there was a lot to get through. And then after that, then you would have then the ascents through the transcendent realm. So who knows how many actually ascents, like, like actually ceremonies that these people went through. I, I have no idea. And every group would have been a little different. But I, but I can, I can imagine many, I can imagine them being a progressive, um, you know, like, well, you got to stage seven. So now you're ready to go on and learn how to do stage eight. Well, that, and this that's... was done in a group. This was, you know, this was a group experience. This, this was not an alone thing where you would sit and do this on your own. Is is that, that seems similar to what the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the Bardos, you know, that so that is a pattern that shows up when you get into mystical practices, right? That you have these kinds of layers yeah. and dimensions of experience, right? Yeah. And yeah, well, that to me is fantastic it's really fascinating. okay so i want to i want to be sensitive to your time i know that we're um i'm wondering if did we do enough tending to kind of transgression and heresy okay is that can we go into that a little bit sure when i i find myself really drawn to now i, I i'm not so in transgression you think about transgression you think about some pretty horrendous stuff you know? right i'm i'm talking about punk rock or, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement, right. you know, transgressing these social norms right. that seems to be, you know, punk rock is a, is a good image of like, these are the carriers, they're the kind of orphan, the archetype of the orphan and the carriers of that part of our culture that, that needs to push up against power and authority and right. on some level... Punk rock is, if we look at the emergence of these uh, kinds of music, if we stay in that realm, they'll, they'll be in a particular kind of social structure, right. like um, right. what was happening in Compton in right. the late 80s, you know, and you have this like huge movement of hip hop and gangster rap that is pushing up against an oppressive power. Right. Same thing for punk rock, you know, this... And same thing for William Blake, you know, right. that, that these these figures are really pushing against a pretty rational, dominant power and authority. So 
I tend to look at those as healthy and adaptive, you know, and they, they innovate and push us along. Um, transgressors like serial killers, you know, are obviously always going to be present, but I, I you know, I don't know, maybe I'm lobbing this out there to see what you have to say about that. Cause I'm sure you run into, I mean that if you push tra transgression and heresy far enough, you get to evil, I'm sure. Yeah, but I think you get to evil if you, I think you can get to evil, evil the other way too. On the other side too, right? right. Yeah. By maintaining something that's no longer working. Right. Be and that's that. So, um, so I don't, I don't think that it has to do with, I don't think transgression has to do with evil any more than um, status quo has to do with evil. I think it's more of a question of a society that comes along to a certain point and I, and, and I don't want to say realizes because I don't think it's conscious, but something else is needed. And the, and people realize this or are, are, are inspired to move into a new, into a new direction. Do you think William Blake goes into the heading of Gnostic? Yes. I agree. Yeah. 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 Well, for that matter, so does uh, Ice Cube and, you know, Easy E and, you know. Well, when you, well, really, when you look at these ancient people and you think, just think about what they were, were doing for a minute, they were saying that Yahweh, the Jewish biblical God, was a monster. Right. Yeah. So what, is that, what does that say? I mean, what does that say about these people? What were they thinking? Why, why, were, they, why were they thinking in this direction, Right. I mean, I, I mean, I don't have a, I don't no. have a necessarily an answer. I'm just saying that, that this sort of transgression. Uh, sometimes I think we we think, oh yeah, they were transgressive, but no, I mean, they were really transgressive to say this. Yeah. Yeah, which which is transgressive against the the dominant power, right. and there were massive consequences for that. Right, and understand the other Christians were also being transgressive, and they were saying to the Romans. Your gods are demons, so they were they saw their gods as monsters too. But I mean, these Gnostic Christians even went further and said, "Oh, Christians, your god is even a monster." Yeah, this is a real critique of religion. It was critique of society. Well, let's let's put a narrative to that. And you you commented that you didn't see a lot of you know, Gnostic. Uh, the Gnostic lens wasn't reflected so much in the New Testament, and then you talked of Judas. Would you talk a bit about what you were getting at there? Because there was a really interesting turn. You mean from the Gospel of Judas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the Gospel of Judas, um, we've known existed, but it just came to light as in a real copy of it in 2006 is when it was published. And so I was one of the first people that was able to work on the text. And that was so your picture. I'm really, yeah, yeah, so I'm so cool. really happy about that. It's very nice. Buy April's book and you can <laughs> see the picture of this. <laughs> but this this text um, appears to have come from a Gnostic group that we call Sethian. So it was a Christian Sethian group. Uh, we call them Sethians because they thought that Adam's son, Seth, was kind of their ancestor. So they traced themselves back to Seth for various reasons, but we won't go into that. Sure. <laughs> uh, but they wrote this this gospel from Judas's perspective, and it is a, a really interesting gospel because in it, 
they are criticizing other Christians for their view of God through Judas. And what they say to the other Christians is, look, you have this guy, Judas, who's betrayed Jesus, who you all think's a demon. And yet his, his betrayal allowed Jesus to be sacrificed. And this is the center of your religion. And every week you have this meal, this Eucharist meal, where you reenact the sacrifice. And so they said, so in, the, so in this gospel, they say to the, basically to the other Christians, look, have you thought about the fact that Judas is a demon? And so what he did is not really worshiping the transcendent God, but it's worshiping the demon God, Yahweh. And so they kind of flip things around. This is how they're so, this is how they work. There's all this sort of inverse reason, reasoning and, and reading of mm -hmm. text going on. But what's really interesting is they connect then Judas with the Yahweh God, right? They say Judas is his, his, his like vice regent or his, you know, is connected with him in the same way that the Christians were saying Jesus is connected with the Yahweh God. So it's just, you know, it was, it's, it's one of the most transgressive Gnostic texts I've ever read. Well, that's going to be on my reading list. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of the same kind of turn that happens when, as we said earlier about the serpent being right, you know, there's this. Exactly. All of a sudden, but it it's brought to light in the New Testament, which is interesting because we can always, you hear a lot of stuff about the Old Testament right. in, in that, well, fantastic. I, I really enjoyed that part. Okay, I want to be sure that um, I did that good. I think we got it. Oh, good. Yeah. What uh, What are we leaving out? Anything at all? Do you Do you have anything um, kind of hanging in the in the background? Um, let me think through my book. Oh, um, okay. So at the end, uh -huh. the Bush book is pushes toward the contemporary period today. Thank you. Yes. Because. Um, you know, I think part of part of the whole writing of this book was for me to understand what happened to me when I picked that text up and read the Gospel of Thomas for the first time. And my realization that that what's going on in contemporary American religion has so many of these Gnostic strands, the spirituality is just all over American religion, not just new age and new religious movements, but even within Christian community, communities, established mm -hmm. Christian communities. And so that was perplexing to me. Why is it that Gnostic spirituality is still surviving when there are no like Gnostic churches from antiquity or anything like that? And so that was a big question that I wanted to start to answer with this book, but I needed to lay out what antiquity looked like first. Right. Because what my argument's gonna be as I move to my next book <laughs> is that it's because of these artifacts that are migrating from antiquity into our new culture, into modernity, that is bringing this sort of Gnostic knowledge, the spirituality into our experience today. And so I want to track when these Gnostic materials, not just Nagamati, but Pista Sophia, the Books of You, um, the Manichaean materials, when they start emerging in our culture again, and we have access to them, and the media gets a hold of them, and scholars get a hold of them, and it starts circulating, and then we end up seeing this stuff in comic books, we end up seeing this stuff in 
film. We start seeing the stuff in music and poetry. It just starts emerging and erupting everywhere. Right. So that's what I want to track. I want to track this. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, because I think that it, it emerges first before the internet time when when everything's just crazy. You put it on the internet and who knows where it goes. You right. can't track it, trace it. But in the old days, we could trace these things and we can see where this knowledge is kind of emerging and routing mm-hmm. early on. Um, we know that first scholars who start talking about this stuff, we know then uh, popularizers who read that stuff and start to disseminate their own opinions on it. So I call those alpha channels. So Blavatsky, for instance, is an alpha channel. So she she soaks up this material from Pistis Sophia. She soaks up some scholarship that was being written at the time. And she just makes her own understanding of Gnosticism fit into her own ideas about religion. And she becomes now a channel for that material, but under her um, in, in her interpretation, right, in her words. Mm-hmm. And so then Jung is another, I think, alpha channel. Right. So he had access to these materials. He's reading them. He's obviously working on them in terms of all of the, um, the, the dream states that he's trying to engage. And it's just the active imagination and oh, all yeah. that he's doing. I mean, his red book, now that we have it, we can just track... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know he's reading these sources. They're erupting in his in his visions and you know, the way that he's, I think, uh, creating uh, his system, his psychological system, his therapeutic system. So, so really, Blavatsky and Jung are two major alpha channels. Alpha channels, um, and then you have beta channels that come off of them, right? Yeah. But those are your two biggies. And then after Nakamati, then you get, you know, scholarship. Elaine Pagels would be an alpha channel. Yeah. Right? You're hitting on a conversation that I want to spend three more hours having. But, but we're not so going this to. This is where this my next book is. Yeah. I, okay. I Th- this is what I'm what that. I'm doing. But I needed to set this up. Yeah. So I imagine that then I'm gonna write this book and then I would like to do in a third book, like a kind of a trilogy, I'd like to do case studies. You know, where I could do really in-depth case studies of, yeah. you know, in, in American religion. You know, Mormonism would be oh, in there, great. right? Yes, yeah. Christian science. Yeah. And you can name it. You, you could name a ton of them. But I'd like to be able to do case studies. But that's going to take a lot, of, a lot of preparation on my part. Yeah, labor of love. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or just discipline and persistence. Right. Um, thank you so much for having this conversation. Yeah, sure. This has thank been you. like... Great, and I think I think similarly, you know, I, I get to uh, join into your inner world and mm. kind of connect with you as you're thinking through, and and this is kind of the behind the scenes, you know, where you get to speak freely about your your kind of thinking. And as a aspiring writer, I'm I'm, I'm grateful. Oh, good, good. Thanks. All right. And uh, thank you. The idea for this performance emerged from my desire to experience the hymns and prayers that ancient Gnostics have left in their text. While we have the Gnostic texts and can read them, this is not the same thing as experiencing them musically. They were meant to be sung or chanted, not read silently. I wanted to bring them to life and feel their impact. 
This performance is meant to reveal how rhythm and pitch in songs and dances enable us to communicate on a level that exceeds language. The musicians decided to view these ancient Gnostic hymns and prayers through this lens, combining modal scales, old and new rhythmic styles, as well as chant. The instrumentation is carefully chosen to emphasize either emotion or life force, in some cases a combination of both. These decisions informed the use of percussion instruments that either have distinguished pitches or those that create pure rhythm. The musicians hope that their performance will enable the experience of these hymns and prayers on a deeper level, perhaps even an unconscious one. The first three hymns are taken from the holy book of the great invisible spirit. This is a sacred book that belonged to a very early Gnostic group with Sethian leanings. The writing is from the second century. They are called Sethians because they believed that their spiritual father was Seth, the son of Adam. The holy book contains a cosmic mapping of all the various beings who live in the transcendent realms and the cosmic spaces. Scattered throughout the prose are many hymns and prayers that the Sethians used in their ceremonies. O Jesus is a hymn of praise to Jesus the living Aeon and the son of the transcendent Father, Mother God. The second hymn, Your Great Name, also gives praise to the Son, who is called here the perfect and self-begotten one who made the Father, Mother God known. The third hymn, God of Silence, gives thanks to the Father as the God of Silence and the formless living one and his son. Notice the frequent pronunciation of the vowels E, I, A, O. Ancient priests in Egypt were known for singing and chanting the vowels in their prayers because each vowel was believed to be the unique sound of a planet. Since the planets were linked to various gods, Intoning the vowels was the way they believed that they could control the harmony of the universe. I imagine these prayers would have been communally performed in Gnostic churches. They may have functioned like the Sanctus in Catholic churches. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to the Lord in the highest.
living water, O Son of the Sun, O glorious name. Mm-hmm. 